This week's reading is taken from 1 Corinthians 1, 1-17. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. A church divided over leaders. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and thanks, Lexi, so much. That was great. Now, if you think about it, every church was planted at some point. A new community of Christians in a new place reaches new people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, nearly a thousand years ago, Exeter, uh, Exeter Cathedral was planted in 1050. E that's even before the Battle of Hastings. And uh, Sunday services at that time were often held out of doors. And once they built the thing, then they could go indoors. Uh, Exeter Network Church was planted a little later in 2005. And since then, we've been involved in planting three other churches in and around Exeter. And we're poised to commission Carl and Sarah and their team this July as we've been praying. And in church planting speak, uh, the Whipton plant is a graft where we're bringing one church into an existing uh, parish and, uh, and they're bringing particular DNA, particular life, particular nutrients to revive that area. And we want to pray also that this plant will be a source of multiplication as well. Uh, a church plant which itself plants churches, which then goes on, they go on to plant churches. Um, the Church of England has kind of really got itself up to speed. And their church planting headquarters are called the, the Gregory Centre for Church Multiplication. And they say that planting new worshipping, worshipping communities is the best way to multiply disciples, to multiply churches, and to multiply networks. So we are, as Joe was saying, really thrilled to be doing this. It's exactly the sort of costly adventure that at EMC we've always been called to, right from the time Joe and I moved from London to here and said to a small group of people, do you want to start a church? So... 
2,000 years ago, St. Paul was on one of his circuits around the Mediterranean and planted a church way out west in Corinth, which, as one person put it, was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It was kind of full of money and travel and big events, and it was also an extremely unequal society. The top 1.5% of inhabitants monopolized at least 20% of all the resources in Corinth. And so Paul went there, and he went there with his church planting team, who were called, they were a couple called Priscilla and Aquila, and they all did the same work. They all worked with their hands. They all made leather, leather goods and leather things. And the, they, first of all, met people on the streets. And the people who came to Christ in those first days were tough and pagan and poor. They were the people who they hung around with at the time. But also, Paul was really successful in bringing people to Christ in the synagogue. Now, quite often when Paul went to the synagogue, he had a really bad time and he tended to get chucked out. But uh, in, in Corinth, he got a good reception. And in fact, you can see as the letter goes on, this 1 Corinthians letter, that um, a couple of patrons of the synagogue, Crispus and Sosthenes, both come to Christ and also a wealthy God-fearing gentle, who's a Gentile whose name was Gaius Titius Justus. So you get, you get these people being converted from, uh, in this very hierarchical society, from the very highest to the very lowest, as it were. He planted a, ver a diverse church of very rich and very poor, and of both Jew and Gentile. And in terms of relationships, he planted and, and brought to Christ people who were single, people who were betrothed, people who were married to pagans, people who were married to Christians. Um, and once he planted that church, he would then stick around with them for a little bit, teach them some stuff, and then move on. And then a little bit later, he would write letters, particularly when he heard reports about how the church were doing. And sometimes they were doing well, and sometimes they really weren't doing terribly well. So this letter of 1 Corinthians is, in fact, the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And um, the first letter is lost. Uh, I can't, I'm not sure, quite sure why. Maybe it wasn't quite as good as the other two. But um, they, then the Corinthians wrote back. And so 1 Corinthians is, is the reply to that. And he's answering a lot of questions that they have a few years after the plant has taken hold. And this very unusually diverse church is having problems holding it together, keeping it together. And it's fracturing around uh, around leaders and around certain different issues. And what I want to do over the next, uh, really over the year, is just look at bits of 1 Corinthians in chunks at different times during the year. And what, uh, what we're going to do right now is just look at, uh, for a few weeks, the first four chapters. And then we'll look at later bits later on in the year. And the primary reason we want to look at it is because it's got so much, so much in it. So it covers so many subjects. So even at a cursory glance, you can find stuff about leadership, the gospel, the spirit, apostleship, relationships, sex, marriage, divorce, lawsuits, money, freedom and rights and worship and gifts of the spirit, money, resurrection and love. You'll remember 1 Corinthians 13, the great passage that's read of, uh, at um, weddings about love. And during the lockdown, we really want to strengthen the church. Uh, and we pray this is our last lockdown, but to strengthen the church, to be, to be fully Christian 
uh, in every part of life. An army of people ready to do what God wants. Everyone, every day, everywhere, as Alan Scott likes to say. And I think 1 Corinthians will really help us with that. So when we look at 1 Corinthians at this point, you'll, the church are really in something of a mess. And if you read through the letter, you'll see they have particular problems. They have problems with relationships. Uh, they have trouble being kind with one another because they're so different. They have problems with leadership and leaders being competitive. They have problems with some people being what you might call super spiritual, uh, that they are holier, they, see that, well, they, they position themselves as being holier and wiser than thou. And uh, that's causing troubles. And they're also having uh, discussions and arguments about sex because there's radically different ethics about sex within the church and within the culture in Corinth. And so Paul needs to tackle these areas and talk about them. And he moves from subject to subject to subject. And uh, he brings his apostolic wisdom and his love to bear on these different kinds of subjects. And you can see how Paul is going to approach it from the off in the passage that Lexi read to us. And uh, he does it in a couple of different ways. And I think this is, this is a kind of way that he does, he does it throughout the letter. So it kind of sets the tone. The, the, he brings two things. He, the, the first thing he brings is an encouragement. And the second thing he brings is a challenge. He brings an encouragement and a challenge, and they both point in the same direction. So if you have your Bibles, do you want to uh, uh, open them and check that you've got hold of 1 Corinthians? It's sort of, uh, it's after the Gospels and somewhere in the middle of the New Testament. And the encouragement comes in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 to 9. I'll just read the first verse of that, where he says this. I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and knowledge and so on. And he goes on in that kind of vein. And even though these guys really are giving him a monumental headache, he kicks off with thanks to God for them. He really loves these guys, you know, and he wants them to succeed. He thanks God for the grace given to them, that they've been enriched in every way, that they're really powerful in speech and knowledge. They don't lack any spiritual gift. And he gives thanks uh, for their speaking gifts and their prophetic gifts. Uh, but it's the way that they're using them that's giving him grief and giving other people grief. And so um, the way he approaches it, I think the great thing is, is that he doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. It's really nuanced. It's really generous to them. But in the end, what he's really doing is he's helping them take their focus, take the focus off themselves and put it onto God, who is the giver of all these good things. So that's the key for him, that he thanks them and he, as it were, almost compliments them for the gifts that they have. But in the end, he's pointing them back to the giver of the gifts. The secret lies in the subject word through that passage, which is always he. It's, all, it's always about God. In him you have been enriched. He will keep you firm. God is faithful and so on. It's always pointing them towards that. So that's the encouragement. And it's really generous encouragement, particularly given the circumstances. And the second thing is the challenge that he brings. And that's from verses 10 to 17. So if you keep your Bibles open and I'll just read you verse 10 or so. And this is the challenge. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you and that you're perfectly united in mind and thought. 
So he's appealing to them, he's challenging them. And he's had a report from some people who've come from a, uh, a household belonging to Chloe. Probably some servants in the household have come to him. And they tell him this. They tell him, look, in Corinth, there's quarrelling, there's fighting, there's division, there's favouritism. And people are lining up behind different leaders. You know, Some people are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos, and so on. And some of them even say... Uh, I follow Christ, and it seems like there's a, just a, a group of people also who have some kind of Christ group, some kind of Christ party. Obviously, all of them want to be following Christ. And they're hanging around with others who agree with them and confirm their rightness, and, spe and they spend time dissing other people who don't agree with them. That's what's going on. It seems even, and I, this seems like difficult to comprehend really, but it seems even that they are boasting about who um, who baptised them. So they're going around and saying, look, I got dunked by Peter. And other people say, I got dunked by Paul. As if that somehow really great, you know, that somehow made them more holy. Um, so that's all they're quarrelling about. And the key again, what Paul does, he does the same thing again in the, in the challenge as he did do in the encouragement, is to take the focus off themselves and uh, help them have their focus on Jesus. Because what he says uh, in the last verse that Lexi read to us is verse 17. He says, For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He knows what he's called to do. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's a really key verse. And... Uh, he he, Paul takes the focus off themselves and their divisions and who they follow and wants to focus them again on Jesus and particularly Jesus on the cross. The cross at face value in terms of human wisdom seems pretty un unimpressive. You've got a God who is crucified. But this simple gospel of a God who suffered with us and suffered for us has such extraordinary power that it calls us to take the knee before uh, Jesus, before him humbly, and to quit quarrelling with our brothers and sisters. It's really the ultimate leveller that we are all equally in, in need when we kneel before the cross. The cross has an extraordinary power to bring us together uh, because we're all in need of forgiveness. We're all in need of deliverance from evil. We're all in need of having guilt and shame uh, and punishment lifted of us. And that's what Jesus does on the cross. He does all those things. Through Jesus hanging on the cross, he forgives our sins. He defeats evil. And he frees us from guilt and shame and punishment. And he shows us that he is with us in our sufferings, that he's gone before us and that he'll always be with us. So Jesus his, and his cross are at the center of it all, Paul says, and so whatever your arguments are, whatever your, uh, the things that are threatening to fracture your community, he says, look, come back, focus on Jesus, remember the cross, remember that each of us needs what Jesus brings in the cross. So just in summing up before we go to our groups, I just uh, thinking about the, plant, the, plant, the planting of churches that we're trying to do, thinking of Paul planting his church and the way that Christianity multiplied around the ancient world. 
uh, I just wanted to put it to you that the enemy, and we do have an enemy, the enemy always intends for division. And God always intends for multiplication. And God always intends for multiplication of disciples and churches and blessings. And the keys are that we keep our focus on Jesus and what he's done on the cross and in the resurrection, and that we steward well the gifts that we have been given in order to multiply uh, what we've been given. You know, we, whatever we've given, we need to we use it or lose it. And uh, it's crucial that we use them well. So just want to uh, send you into your groups for, I think it's for eight minutes. And um, uh, just take a little time to say hello to one another. Each of the groups have got a, a leader who will say hello to you and kind of draw you into conversation. But here's a couple of questions. Just one question is, what strikes you from this passage? What strikes you from this passage or maybe from something I've said? Um, and if you want to go a little deeper, ask, ask yourselves the question, what does the cross of Christ mean to you? What does the cross of Christ mean to you? Is that okay? All right. So uh, do go into your groups, do say hi, and have a go at one of the questions. Here we go.